So I uh, wonder how many of you made New Year's resolutions over the past couple of weeks um, as the New Year turned around. Uh, I do know that uh, in 1961, uh, the woman up on the big screen, whose name is Jean Nidech, she certainly did. She made uh, some New Year's revolution, resolutions. <laughs> uh, she was, uh, described herself as overweight since she was a child. And so as she was uh, on her 38th birthday, uh, or actually as the, the New Year turned, uh, she really resolved that she would start dieting. And uh, unfortunately, they had a program that was sponsored by the New York City Department of Health, and so she tried it out. And after 10 weeks, actually she did pretty well. She lost 20 pounds, but the more that she succeeded, the more that she uh, lost weight, she, she found herself starting to lose motivation, right? Starting to, well, it's okay if I cheat a little bit here and there, or oh, I don't really need to get up and go for a walk today because I lost some weight. And she ended up gaining all 20 pounds back. And I, I, I hear some of you groaning because you may have had that experience yourself. Now, after reflecting on the ups and downs and the failures here, she realized uh, the one thing that helped her most during those 10 weeks was that if she would spend, whenever she spent time talking with people, talking with people tended to be the, the way that she got the most support and inspiration to stay on track. And so what she did was instead of just continuing doing this diet all by herself, she gathered six of her friends in her living room in Queens on a weekly basis. And the, the goal was to promote accountability and particularly for them to uh, share ideas and to share stories and to share their victories together. And then out of those meetings grew what is uh, commonly known now as the Weight Watchers Program, which is widely recognized as one of the most effective weight loss programs in the world because of the power of inspiration that we can draw from other people. And I want to propose to you this morning that our life with God is a little bit like that, in the sense that whether we face successes or struggles, that it's easy to lose momentum and motivation to keep going forward. And so where can we draw some inspiration to continue moving forward, especially as we enter this new year? Turn in your Bible, if you have one, to Nehemiah chapter 7. We're in this series that most of you know is called Restore how we experience the restoration uh, in our lives by returning to God to rebuild what's been broken. And not simply replacing it with the same old broken things, but for God to build something new, something better. And we've talked about how Nehemiah is a picture of the gospel, that when we invite Jesus into our lives and he rebuilds our heart and our soul to live for Jesus, that he doesn't simply replace our lives with the same brokenness and sinfulness that we had before, but he comes in and gives us a new heart, a new life. He rebuilds something new, something better. And so we saw in chapters 1 through 3 that God gave to Nehemiah this conviction for a suffering city in need of a savior. And through prayer and planning and preparation that he cast this grand vision for the people of God to rebuild the physical and the spiritual walls of their families and communities together. Chapters 4 through 6, they encountered threats externally, internally, and even personally that they had to respond to with prayer and practical means against the distractions and against the complacency. And so now we're at this point in the story where they finished rebuilding the walls and the, they've completed the vision that God has put on Nehemiah's heart. And so the question is, what's next? How do they continue having momentum and motivation to move on 
to move forward. <laughs> and we're going to cover about 70 verses today. So hold on to your horses, all right? Here we go. Uh, chapter 7, verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Don't worry, they're really short verses. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the provinces who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. Remember, Babylon was who first exiled um, the, the, the Jewish people, and now they're returning to Jerusalem through, with Nehemiah. Uh, so the king of Babylon carried into their exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, this first wave, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, another Nehemiah, not this one, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilsham, Misbreth, Bigvi, Nehem, and Ba'ara. Okay, here we go. Hold on to your hats, okay? Uh, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Ara, 652. The sons of Pehath, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Bibai, uh, 628. The sons of Asgad, I almost said Asgard, 2,322. The sons of Adonakam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067, the sons of Aden, uh, 655, the sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98. Are you feeling deeply moved in your spirit yet? The sons of Hash, uh, I need my glasses. The sons of Hashum, 328, the sons of Bezai, 324, the sons of Harif, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95. How far is he going to go? To verse 38, the men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188, the men of Anathoth, 128, the men of uh, Beit, uh, Asmaveth, 42, uh, the men of Kiriath, Jerem, uh, Chephera and Beeroth, 743, the men of Ramah and Giba, 621, the men of Mikmas, 122. Right now he's talking about people coming from different cities. Uh, you don't care. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123, the men of the other Nebo, 52, the sons of the other Elam. <laughs> how would you like to be referred to as the other person. Uh, 1,254, the sons of Harim, 320, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, the sons of Sama, 3,930. Let's stop right there. I know that was deeply convicting, and we could just stop right there. You go home and feel that your heart light's been changed. But what's happening here is in verse 4, the, remember, we, we actually covered this verse last week, that the city is wide and large, but that construction of new homes has taken a back seat to, build, to the building of the walls during Nehemiah's time. So what that means was that there were very few people who actually lived in the city of Jerusalem. So now, now that they've reached their goal, the vision is done. They've completed the wall. The temptation is for everyone who served and sacrificed to uh, build this wall to return to their safe and secure suburbs and their farms far away from the city. But what is the point of rebuilding the walls? You remember that the whole point of why they're building these walls around Jerusalem is to provide a welcoming, safe refuge to invite people to come and experience and enjoy worshiping the Lord. 
That's the whole point of why bother building walls around Jerusalem. To dwell with him, to dwell with God as part of his family. It's a picture of the gospel of what our eternal future is like. That's the invitation that God extends through Nehemiah as a savior of a city and that ultimately he extends to us through Jesus as the savior of humanity. So what good is a city with walls without people residing within? So in verse 5, God puts it on Nehemiah's heart to gather all the people of Judah for a census, for a head count. And they do so by your family genealogy. Here are all the Wongs from the tribe of Judah. Here are all the Cordovas from the tribe of Levi. And gets them all together to remind them of their roots in God's family, number one. And secondly, to invite them to invest themselves and their homes and their lives into the city, into the glory of God. And then the second half of verse 5 through 7, God provides a powerful discovery as they're trying to do this thing. And it's not, it's, it's one of those things like if you were Nehemiah, oh, that's like a strange coincidence. No, it's the sovereignty of God at work. They discover the old book of genealogy from the time of Zerubbabel, uh, the high priest, and Jeshua. This is the, the first wave of exiles that returned from Babylon to uh, Jerusalem. And that's about 90 years before Nehemiah. So there were three waves of exiles that returned from Babylon, and that was the first one. And so this list, this list of names in verses 8 through 38 that I just read to you, it doesn't mean very much to us, does it? But it speaks tremendous encouragement to the people of Nehemiah's time. How so? It reminds them of the enormous risk that this previous generation took in order to return to Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. Because you remember, this is the generation that first was living in captivity all this time. But by the grace of God, they acclimated to Babylon. They were able to eke out a comfortable living amongst uh, the people there. And we know that because of this, uh, not only because of the archaeological evidence, but in the records of the surviving exiles, only about 2% of the surviving Jewish people returned, left the luxury and security of, of the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire behind, uh, Babylonian Empire, excuse me, to return to Jerusalem, to endure difficulty, poverty, enemies. They weren't returning to a friendly land, and they weren't returning uh, from, with their wealth with them. And so the question is, why would they do that? They already eked out. It's like if for some of you uh, who are first-generation immigrants or if you uh, have parents who are first-generation immigrants, that you come to this country and you to eke out a living, you started from nothing and, and built your life back up and then decided, I'm going to go back to my home country with nothing to show for it. So why would they do that? Because of the calling of God. You see, life may be easier in Babylon but it's better in Judah because that's where God is calling them. That's where they will experience God. And so the big idea of the passage this morning is that we are to remember the pioneers of faith who prioritized the calling of God more than the comforts of life. That's what this census, this list of names tells us. And those, this list inspires the people of Nehemiah's time for them to also take that next step of faith, to trust God, to follow God, to live for God, specifically as he calls them to come and inhabit this city and invite other people into the refuge of God and the worship of God. The fact that you are sitting here in this refuge, 
in this sanctuary of worship this morning, today, is because of the faithfulness and the sacrifice of pioneers who went before you. The picture that's coming up on the big screen is of not, not all the uh, initial founders of the church, but early on in our church history. And uh, this church started as a Bible study for college students in 1977 who would gather around in home and, uh, homes and eventually grew into a church in 1980. And so this picture you see up on the big screen, this is from uh, 1981 when we rented uh, this little Methodist church right here on B Street uh, in downtown Hayward. And it was small enough to house this small church that was taking growth. And yet the vision that God had for the church was much bigger than that. In fact, if you look on the picture, on the second from the bottom row, uh, on the far right, uh, that woman in the khaki blazer, that's my grandmother. And I watched her. When I moved to California in 1981, and the church had already started moving, uh, meeting on B Street, I watched my grandmother, some of my aunts and uncles, as they uh, spent years fasting and praying, scrimping and saving, and then generously gave in order for the church to be able to purchase its own property. In fact, to purchase this property in 1984. Now, this early church of ours, the, the pioneers of our church, uh, they were first-generation immigrants who came to this country, who oftentimes didn't have much, didn't necessarily fit in. They were outside the culture. It was all outside their culture and outside their comfort zone. And yet, through their faithfulness, the Lord provided a safe haven in Christ for many outsiders, people who felt outside the culture. And I want to tell you that directly shapes the vision of our church today. That, you know, that we as at the crossing, we see people in our community, in this community, who also may not have much, may not always fit in, who feel like outsiders towards the growing divide of wealth and health and opportunities in the Bay Area. And that we have the opportunity to give people, other fellow outsiders, that same gift to welcome them into a safe haven in Christ with us. You see, there are times, uh, I confess, when I'm working in ministry, when I'm feeling too stressed by the pressure or too satisfied by the progress, and I'm not moving. And then I remember the sacrifices of the pioneers who came before us and reminds me that the calling of God is more important than the, the comforts of this life. And so I want to challenge you by asking you, what is that Babylon that Jesus is calling you to leave? And where is that Jerusalem that Jesus is calling you to go? And that like the people of Judah, when you can't move past the sacrifices, the struggles, or the even success sometimes can be a hindrance to us. To remember the examples of faith who have gone before you. Who decided life may be easier in Babylon, but it's better in Jerusalem. Because that's where I'm going to experience God. That's where I experience his calling. Now in this story. If you just need more people to fill the city, then isn't that just a numbers problem? Like you could just round up warm bodies and maybe offer, here's some home buying discounts in Jerusalem. Here's some housewarming gifts if you invest early, if you're an early adopter. Is that the solution to this kind of problem that Nehemiah has? Let's work, look on in verse 39. Here we go. Your favorite part. The priest, the, son of, the sons of Jediah, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. 
the Levites, those who serve in the temple, priests, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Kadmiel, of the sons of Hodavah, 74, the singers, the sons of Asaph, these are the worship leaders, 148, the gatekeepers, not of the walls of Jerusalem, but of the temple, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talmud, the sons of uh, Akob, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the, uh, these are more like the administrative staff or the uh, church staff. The sons of Ziba, the sons of Has- Hasipha, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Siah, the sons of Padom, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedal, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Meunam, the sons of Nefushasim, the sons of Bak- Bakbuk. Backbook. <laughs> the sons of Hakafa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Bazlib. I should have pre- read this better in my free time. The practice it. The sons of Mahida, the sons of Harshim, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of uh, Temah, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants. These are uh, other people who served in the temple appointed during David and Solomon's time. Uh, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophoreth, the sons of Peridot, the sons of Ja'ala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shep- Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pachareth, uh, Hazabayim, the sons of Amon. All the temple servants and all the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. That's a really large section just to talk about 392. The following were those who came up from Talmala, Talharsha, Kerub, Adon, and Emir, but could not, they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. Pay attention to this part. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hekaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name instead of by his Jewish family name. These sought their registration amongst those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them they were, they were not to partake of the most holy food, part of the worship for those uh, serving the worship for those who served in the temple until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. So what's happening here? Remember the point of building the wall? We talked about this at the beginning of the message today. That this whole point is to create a refuge, welcoming people to worship God. And so, like Nehemiah, this previous generation of returning Israelites, uh, they not only need to fill the city, it's not just about the numbers, they need people who are qualified to lead the worship in the temple. So in verses 39 to 42, it records all the priests, all the pastor families, and then on top of that in verses 43 through 60, you like how I breeze through about 60 verses, they, these are all the people who are serving in the temple. So this is uh, the Levites, the musicians, the music worship leaders, uh, the uh, church admin staff, and the admin assistants. And what's fascinating is that all these people are named and honored and counted in this list, not just once, but twice. This list happens also in Ezra chapter 2. These guys get their names in the Bible twice. But it's not because serving at church makes you more holy or worthy or more righteous, but because their work, their role is to direct people's eyes and their hearts and their lips and their lives toward the one who is holy and worthy and righteous through worship. Now here's the problem. In verses 61 through 64, there are people who are claiming to be priests and yet unable to prove their Jewish lineage. 
And the result, it says, is that they're excluded from the priesthood as unclean. Well, Josh, that sounds very insulting and very rejecting. But the issue at stake here is that not everyone who hangs around God's people are God's people. That a lot of people claim to be Christians in this country, or a lot of people attend a church, but aren't necessarily followers of Jesus. And so it's critical that God confirm that these priests are descended from Aaron, who if you remember in Exodus is the first high priest, the brother of Moses, and uh, from his tribe, from the tribe of Levi, because it's to prove that they are part of God's people in obedience to God's law, and it's critical because they lead the worship. They lead others into the worship of God. So instead of being excluding, I would argue that this is actually very loving. Because it points to the holiness as well as the grace of God. That people come before the throne of grace not cleansed by their ability or morality, but by family, by being part of the family of God through faith, not by how you earned it, not by your merit. I think about it this way. Um, Some of you know my stepfather, that he attended church for many years with my mother, yet did not become a Christian for for many, many years. But... He loves karaoke. (laughs) He loves singing. And so he's a little miffed when he was told by their church that he's not allowed to join the church choir. Because he thought, you know, it's just another opportunity to to sharpen his karaoke skills, right? And so he's a little bit miffed about it and asked me, Josh, you are a pastor at your church. What do you think? Is that very welcoming and Christian and loving? And I told him, you know, Dad, uh, worship is more than just music. That it's not just an offering of your lips, but an offering of your life to God. That when we worship, it's about a sacrificial act of giving glory to God. And the problem with someone standing up there, whether in the choir or as a worship leader, is that you can't lead other people to love God and serve God and surrender to God if you yourself haven't done so yet. And to his credit, he got it. He understood And praise the Lord, to wrap this story up with a bow, after 19 years of experiencing the truth of God and the mercy of God at this church with my mom, he finally bowed his heart and his life to Jesus. And one of my greatest pleasures was being at his church to witness his baptism and at that same day, his first time being able to sing in the choir to help lead worship. You see, Part of the point here is that we need to remember that genuine worship prioritizes the commitment of faith more than the convenience of crowds. That as we move towards God and his purposes and his promises, that the goal isn't simply to get as many warm bodies into the city of Jerusalem as possible for Nehemiah. It's not simply to fill as many seats as we can at church on Sundays. It's not to have the biggest and fanciest outreach where A hundred or a thousand neighbors come and attend. The point is to get people to move from a faith of convenience to the commitment of family so that people can genuinely know and worship God. And the good news is that membership in God's family is not dependent on being born into the right geography or the right genealogy in Israel or even in the church, being part of the right family at church. It's not based on your ability or your accomplishments. It's not about 
uh, if you're Jewish enough or if you are good enough, but by your faith in Christ, we receive his forgiveness, his righteousness, his salvation. And Romans chapter 4, verse 13 and Galatians 3, verse 29 tells us that as you place your faith in Christ, that you become spiritual heirs of Abraham, that you receive that genealogy in God's family through your faith in Jesus. Now, when we look at this story, though, but isn't it a little unfair to someone who may be genuinely a Levite, but then they're unable to prove their, their ancestry, so they're disqualified from the priesthood as unclean and from the family? If you look at the end of this passage, verse 65, the governor at that time, who's not Nehemiah, this is a previous governor of that first wave, he instructs that those people in that category just wait until God raises up a new high priest who carries the Urim and the Thummim. Now, some of you might remember this from uh, when we said Exodus. Many of you are shaking your heads. No, you don't remember. These were the stones of decision that were carried in a pouch over the high priest's heart. And the whole purpose of them was to discern the will of God. Like they would use them and shake them. It's kind of like casting lots. But basically, the high priest, uh, God would speak to him through these rocks as he, as he uh, carried them over his heart in Exodus 28 and Numbers 27, verse 21. In other words... Who cares, right? In other words, if you didn't have your passport or your proof of your citizenship, of your membership in, in the Jewish tribes, that you're not ignored or forgotten, that God himself would affirm their commitment of faith and their membership in his family as a genuine worshiper of God. That's what the governor was telling those who couldn't prove their, their lineage, that God will, God will prove it, that you're a membership in his family. And the good news for us is that we no longer rely on rocks to speak to a priest's heart to confirm our commitment in God's family. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 tells us that by our faith in Christ, God himself, the Holy Spirit, dwells in our hearts instead of over a high priest's heart to confirm our new birth, our new genealogy, our new family, our new inheritance in the family of God through Jesus Christ. And so I want you to think about how the people who came before you, just like in Nehemiah's time before them, are reminding you that moving forward with God is about moving towards him in worship. And so, like the standard in this passage, is your faith one of commitment or convenience? Are you part of God's family or just part of the crowd? Let's wrap up this passage. Verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360. Beside their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Praise the Lord. Now, some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the work the governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest's garments, and 500 um, minas of silver. <coughs> Excuse me. And some of the heads of, of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priest's garments. That's weird. 
So, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And now, moving back to Nehemiah's time, and when the seventh month had come for the people in Nehemiah's time, the people of Israel also were in their towns. So in verses 66 through 69, this is a good-sized group of those first returning exiles, right? They're a pretty big, big group. We finally got the total head count, and they brought all they, they had on this armada of animals. You saw that they listed all the camels, the donkeys, etc. This is just showing you how much they had coming out of Babylon. But it wasn't simply to build a new life for themselves in their ancestral homelands. We see in verses 70 through 71, that the heads of the family, including the governor, they all gave to the work of rebuilding the temple worship in Jerusalem. They contributed silver and gold. They contributed articles of clothing for the priests and basins used in the worship. In other words, the people of influence and affluence, they didn't just hoard their money and their stuff for themselves. They weren't just concerned about creating generational wealth for their families. They didn't oppress the rest of the people by squeezing them and guilting them for the resources needed for the temple worship. You see, when you are a person of influence, when you are a leader in the community, when you are a leader at church, we don't just tell others what to do. We lead from the front in sacrifice and in giving. And as a result, in verse 72 and 73, their example inspires the rest of the folks to also give generously towards the temple. And what we see happening here is in verse 73 that with everything prepared and ready to serve and worship the Lord together, what happens? What happens? By investing in the worship of God, it empowered the people back then to honor and obey God, to go and occupy the city and the surrounding towns. And then as we jump forward back to Nehemiah's time, it says in the second half of verse 73 that the example of the pioneers emboldened Nehemiah's people to also move out of their comfort zones into the city and surrounding towns as well. And so for you and I, when we're hesitant to face that next challenge, when we're hesitant to follow God's calling, we need to remember people who prioritize sacrificial giving their sacrificial generosity more than their personal security in order to worship God. And the reason why I talk about it that way is you may remember in Romans chapter 11, verse 36 to chapter 12, verse 1, that worship is about two things, glory and sacrifice. That there is someone or something in a position of glory in your life that you treasure, that you cherish, that, is, that you're passionate about as most important. Who or what is in that position of glory that's most important to you? And worship is also about sacrifice because you and I have limited resources. We only have so much time, energy, money. And so we need to make decisions all the time and they're worship decisions with those limited resources. It shows up in your calendar, in your inbox, in your budget because life is about making sacrifices, choosing not to do one thing so that you can do another thing that you find more glorious. Make sense? And Paul would say in, in Romans 12 that that is your spiritual act of worship, making sacrifices to the glory of something. And that's why this is so inspiring and empowering for the people back then to see examples who worship God as worthy of glory and sacrifice. I think about the total expense for this new building. You remember what it was? 
$6.93 million. Now, at the beginning of the, this building project, uh, you know, several years ago, that, a cost like that would seem staggering. How are we going to afford to build something like that? And I want to say, of course, part of the testimony here is how God powerfully and provides through your generous giving. But I want to share a different story with you, and maybe an unknown story to you, and I ask permission to share this. But uh, Pastor Roy, the, the lead pastor over in our Chinese-speaking congregation, he approached me uh, at the beginning of the building project because uh, he was very concerned. But he asked me privately, Josh, could we lead by our example together? Could we propose to the board that you and I would take cuts in our salary towards the finance, financing the new building? I was so inspired and in love with this man of God that I forgot to consult my wife before I said to him, yes, definitely yes. <laughs> now, uh, cooler heads prevailed and uh, some of the board officers we spoke to rejected our offer. But I will never forget Pastor Roy's tremendous example of humility and generosity and sacrifice. It still encourages me, even years later, to live and to give for Jesus because our God is worthy of glory and sacrifice. So who inspires you as an example of sacrificial generosity to the glory of God? And what is that area of personal security that Jesus is calling you to surrender in order for you to better worship God? You see, this list of names it's not just a meaningless interruption in the story of Nehemiah. It's meaningful motivation for the people of God to move forward by remembering the pioneering people of faith who took risks, who prioritized the calling of God more than the comforts of life. And isn't that the gospel? You see, this isn't just something that Jesus tells us about or tells us to do. This is something that Jesus himself does. That he obeys the calling of God, his Father, that the Son of God sacrifices the comforts of heaven to become a man and then sacrifices his life to become our Savior. And that by saving us, he also inspires and empowers us to live out something better, something lasting in Christ. And so I want to ask you one last time, what comforts of Babylon is Jesus calling you to leave? What commitment of Jerusalem is Jesus calling you to go? And for some of you, it's sacrificing the comfort of your suburban security to participate in the mission of God in this community. Some of you, it's sacrificing that picture-perfect image of your family for the honest struggles of a real family. Some of you, it's moving from just giving to God's work when it's convenient to giving biblically and regularly and cheerfully and sacrificially so that it stings a little bit. Some of it, God is calling you to give up maybe that life that you're leave, living. You're in the prime of your life. You're living your best life right now. But perhaps God is calling you to live a better life of loving and sacrificing and service in ministry. Are you willing to sacrifice the comforts of life for the calling of God? And like the people of Judah, when we can't move past the struggles or the success, remember people who have gone before you, examples of faith who decided 
life may be easier in Babylon, but it's always better in Jerusalem because that is where we experience Jesus, his purposes, and his promises to grab hold of life that is truly life. Heavenly Father, as we take a quiet moment to reflect, we ask that your spirit would move in our hearts. I know that this passage, when I first read it, meant nothing to me, but I can't help but feel your Holy Spirit grab a hold of me and remind me of the example of just spiritual giants of faith who have gone before us. Who have surrendered it all for the sake of Jesus. Would you help us, O God? I know there are times it's easy to rest on the laurels of our success or to give up because of the struggles ahead of us. But help us, God. Help us to give you glory and sacrifice to make choices, worship decisions because we're genuinely part of your family through our faith in Jesus. And so would you examine our hearts and our lives and reveal to us areas that we need to surrender, comforts of life and control of our life that we need to give up to you. Give us courage to pick up our cross daily, to deny ourselves, to follow you today.